as some of you know, we just finished half of a sermon series where we've been talking about what it means. Yeah, I finished half. I like you. Yeah, thanks for picking up on that, Doug. We've been talking about what it means to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we talked about what it means to be a disciple is to find our identity as the beloved of God. So often in our minds, we believe that we forge our identity, create our identity, project our identity into the world. But the Christian message says that we fundamentally receive our identity. What it means to be you, what it means to be me, is to be the very beloved of God. And we gave a brief definition of what it meant to be the beloved. What it meant to find our identity as a disciple of Christ, as the beloved of God, it means that we're a chosen child of God, blessed, broken, resurrected, and fed. In a world where we so rarely feel desired, at the heart of our identity is that God chose us. Not only did he choose us to just be a random citizen, he chose us to be his very own child. And when he chose us to be his child, he, he chose to lavish blessings upon us by the gifts of the Holy Spirit and, and every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. But part of that spiritual blessing is the part that we don't like, but we all know that we need, is the process of being broken, where the Lord takes us through a process of dying to sin and then he brings us into life where we are directed towards ever-increasing communion with him. And then finally, we talked about what it means to be fed spiritually upon his very presence. Now, for between now and Advent, which is, I can't remember precisely how many weeks, I'd like to pivot slightly in this series. We're going to continue to do a series, preach through a series on what it means to be a disciple, but now I want to look at the practices of the disciple, the practices of following Jesus and growing as the beloved. And this week, I want to look at the very beginning of that, to look at kind of something that seems somewhat obvious, but we so often miss, that if we are called to grow as disciples, that necessitates that we actually grow that if we're adopted as children, we're not meant to stay as spiritual babies. But part of what it means to be a disciple is to engage in a lifestyle, a life of ever-increasing growth as we're conformed to the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. But it's also important to remember that whenever we speak about Christian growth, we are necessarily talking about Christian freedom in the Spirit. You can't differentiate those two. You can't have one without the other. To grow spiritually is to grow in Christian freedom in the power of the Holy Spirit. So today, I would like to look at 2 Corinthians 3, verses 17 through 18. And I want to look at three things as always, but in reality, it's four. I just package it as three so I can get away with four. First, as we grow in the image of Christ we recognize that we desperately need to be set free from sin. What often stalls us out in growing like Jesus is we don't believe that we can actually be freed from the sins of our lives. We believe that they're going to be clinging on to us forever. So why do we even try? Second, I want to look at what does it actually mean to be free, that we are freed from sin, but we are freed 
to being conformed and transformed into the image of Jesus. So often, what do we think freedom is? Doing whatever you want. But we actually know that's actually slavery. Never has there ever been a time in human history where people can do whatever they want, and yet we are in chains everywhere. To be truly free is to be conformed and transformed into the image of Jesus. And then I want to look at two practices because we're going to try to move into looking at practical realities, practical works of the Holy Spirit. We'll look at two things. First, the Spirit transforms us into the image of Jesus as he turns our gaze to Jesus. What we behold, what we gaze upon transforms us over time. And then second, I want to look at the practice of surrender, the practice of daily abandonment to the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. So if you would, turn with me to 2 Corinthians 3, 17 through 18. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Now, as a point of context here, Paul is differentiating the slavery of the Old Covenant. We've talked about this before, but, but the law in the Old Testament served three purposes, right? It taught you what you ought to do. That's why King David could say, I delight in your law all of my days, right? It actually teaches you what it means to follow Jesus. The law curbs the fallen human heart so that we don't, you know, kill each other or whatever. But first and foremost, the law reveals to you the perfect standards of God that you are nowhere near fulfilling. The law is a mirror that reveals and magnifies the sinfulness in all of our hearts. And so when he's talking about finding freedom in the Holy Spirit here, what he's talking about is the freedom that we can have from sin because we are longing for freedom from that magnifying glass where the law actually compounds sin in our lives. Now, how many of us have felt the longing for freedom from sin? How many of us? How many of us have sins in our lives that at one time we went to to find some release from the world? You know, we, we went to them to, to find comfort amidst our grief, uh, to find control amidst the chaos of our lives, uh, to find some form of rationale and understanding in this world in which we live. At one time, maybe the anger that was in your heart was a righteous anger. You saw the injustices of the world. You were the only one that saw them, right? You know, the only one that saw the injustices of the world. And then you rationalized a life of resentment, and now you can't stop being resentful. How many of you have had that in your life? A sin that at one time felt like a solution has now become an enslavement. You feel unloved, so your heart is perpetually drawn to lust. Because at least there you can feel loved in your imagination. You feel unsatisfied in the world. And so what do you do? You move to greed in the use of resources to find some temporary satisfaction in the things of this world. But then what ends up happening? Modern marketing has 
done a pretty good job of keeping us perpetually unsatisfied so that we have to keep buying more. Turns out, you know, they've just tapped into the nature of sin. What ends up happening is we go to sins over and over as a solution, but then they end up becoming an enslavement. And then you hear the pastor say, you need to grow. You need to become more like Jesus. And then you look at that thing that's tied around your ankle and you're chained to the wall. You look like Toad from, you know, the wind in the willows and he's got his ball and chain, right? We've all seen the wind in the willows, right? If you haven't, you need to see the wind in the willows, right? He dresses up like an old lady and he tosses the ball. And ch- anyway, the ball and chain is tied around your ankle. And you say, how on earth can I grow when I'm shackled to the wall? Or am I the only one that's ever felt that way? See, the very first process, the very first act, when we're going to be talking about this engagement of growing more like Jesus, is to first proclaim that the Spirit can set you free. Christian growth is first a leap of faith. The leap of faith that the Spirit can actually cut that cord. The Spirit can actually remove that sin from your life. The Spirit, like a surgeon, can open you up in a very hard and often very painful process and take that sin away from you so that you can go free. My experience is so often our failures in discipleship are the result of a lack of faith. I don't say that to shame any of you because that's my experience as, as well. We look at that sin that plagues us and we say, I don't think I can ever go free, so I'm just going to look forward to the new heavens and the new earth when I'm completely made new again. But the promise of the Spirit is this. He actually can set you free now. He can free you from that resentment. He can free you from that lust. He can free you from that greed. He can free you from any of those things that have captured your heart. But it begins with a leap of faith that he can actually do it. All of this talk about growing like Jesus will be for nothing if we don't first begin there. If we don't first begin in a posture of utter reliance and abandonment to the Spirit, that he can do something that you have given up trying to do on your own. And praise be to God, you've gotten to a point where you've given up trying to do it on your own. You know, this passage was the the theme verse of the ministry I first got started in. It was called Fishes and Loaves. And that song that Aaron led us with, Lord, I need you, oh, I need you. I've shared this with you a lot of times. That was a song we sang almost every Sunday. And this was the verse that we quoted almost every single Sunday because this was a ministry to the homeless, to addicts, to prostitutes, to drug dealers, to you name it. And they all knew that in their own power, they couldn't be set free. And that their only hope was the power of the Spirit. And just because you drove here in a nice car and you have a nice career doesn't mean that you are any different. The only hope that you have, the only hope that I have, is if the Spirit does a work that we can't do in ourselves to set us free. And that begins with a posture of utter reliance. The Lord loves to hear the prayer, Lord I've come to the end of my rope. Lord, I can't do this. Spirit, you have to do a miracle in me. 
That's where Christian growth begins for all of us. Now, what we are freed from is sin. But it's important to remember that we are freed to something. We are freed toward a new life. You don't just get out of prison. You know, people don't want to just get out of prison to get out of prison, right? You know, prisons are terrible places. You don't want to be there. But what do you want to get out of prison? I want my life back, right? I want to go back to the way things were. Or I want to make a big change. And I want to become a different person. And so too, when the Spirit sets us free, He sets us free toward freedom, which is the image of Christ Jesus itself. Look back at verse 18 with me. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Now, I love this passage for countless reasons, but one of them is that from one degree of glory to another, which means what? God doesn't expect you to be a finished product right now. It's one degree of glory to another. That means we are all works in progress, but we are all bound for glory. Each of us that walks in this room recognizes, just like in an AA meeting, I am a work in progress, and yet we all have the same destiny. If we put our faith in Jesus, it's to be transformed from one degree of glory to another because we are bound to be formed by his image. But what I also love in this passage is something. It reframes freedom for us. You know, our culture thinks that freedom is to have a self-derived, self-actualized identity, right? And we can go into a million different ways in which that is the case, and I won't go into all of them. But ultimately, we tend to think that the mature person, the growing person, the free person is a person who has forged their identity, and exerted it onto the world. You know, out here in the West, we love that image, right? Because what is the West built upon? The pioneers that exerted themselves onto the world. In the West, in general, we tend to think that the good person is the one who disrupts, you know, an idea, an industry, an economic structure, and exerts themselves upon it. It was interesting. I was talking to Toby Coffin this week. We were talking about Paradise Lost, and I haven't read Paradise Lost in ages, but it's a brilliant book if you haven't read it. And Lucifer is this great character because he shines a giant mirror on you and on me, right? So, you know, Lucifer, Satan, what Milton's trying to say is like, yeah, that's basically the fallen human heart writ large in a person, this fallen angel. And Lucifer's kind of got his, you know, his rhetorical skill down, And he makes the argument, I can't remember being created, therefore I must have created myself, therefore I am the master of my own destiny. And that ideology landed Lucifer in hell, and it does the exact same thing to us. Because we actually were created. And because we were created, we were created to fit in a shape. We often don't think about this, right? The world has a shape. The world has a givenness. The world has a structure, what philosophers or theologians call a metaphysic, right? 
And when the world fits within the metaphysic that God has given it, the world actually functions. And when we rebel against it, our hearts turn in on themselves and the world leads to ever-increasing chaos. Some of you have heard me say this before, and you think I'm often punting on social issues, which if you know me well enough, I don't tend to punt on social issues. Um, but the biggest issue we have today is our lack of metaphysic, right? We don't have an understanding of what the world is actually meant to be. And I'm, I'm worried that because we haven't taught strong metaphysics to our pastors, they don't have a strong understanding of what the world is meant to be. And therefore, they have you know, this idea of, well, you know, that's bad over there, but they don't have a reason why. Why is it that the world is structured in a specific way? Because God's word orders the world. Lagos, word, actually means structure. It means a givenness. It means a form. And when we step outside of that form, thinking that we're engaging in freedom, what we actually are engaging in is what's called slavery. And so what does it mean to be conformed and transformed into the givenness of the world, the structure of the world, the true form of the world? For human beings who are made in the image of God, it means that we are transformed into the image of God incarnate. For us to be truly free, for us to truly be formed as we were meant to be formed, means that we are transformed into the very image of Jesus. Does your image of the good life, the life that you are actually striving towards, the life that you are running towards, is it built upon Jesus Christ or is it built upon another form? Is it built upon who Jesus actually is? Or is it built upon your idol of who you wish Jesus was? To be truly human is for the Spirit to move within us, act within us, and transform us into the image of Jesus. And that's where true freedom is to be found and nowhere else. Now, it's all swell and good for me to just say that, but how does the Spirit actually do it? You know, how does the Spirit actually move us to become like Jesus? Well, I want to just look at two ways, because I'm running out of time. First, He does it by turning our gaze to Jesus. Look at the, look at the image here of looking, pondering, gazing upon and we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. You know, human beings are captivated by beauty. What we gaze upon, what we find beautiful, transforms us. But so too, our hearts are deformed by that which is horrendous and ugly. I'm reading a book right now called The Soldier of the Great War. It's a great book. It's a sad book, though. It's about the um, battles of the Ascenso in northern Italy during World War I. And one of the points he's trying to make is most of these men died before they ever died because of the horrendous things that they saw every day. And so, too, when, when all we do is gaze upon that which is evil, it deforms the very nature of our heart, and it dries it up. But when we gaze upon beauty, 
when we gaze upon that which is true and beautiful and good, the Spirit moves within us and brings us to ever-increasing life. And that's especially the case when we gaze upon the face of Jesus. Because Jesus isn't just that which is beautiful. Jesus is the one that gazes back. Jesus is the one who turns his face towards us. This isn't just looking at, you know, the beauty of a mountain hike. This is gazing upon the beauty of the one who loves you unconditionally. Now, you guys are going to get tired of me talking about this, but I always bring it up because it's just, it's, it's such a major part of our discipleship. When we look at someone that we love and when they look back at us, when a mother looks at her baby, a bond forms. And that mother has access to a child's formation in a way that nobody else does. A child looks at their mom for eight hours a day when they're in the early stages of their life. And what are they asking? Who are we? They have no concept of who am I. A child only asks the question, who are we? And a child is ultimately formed by that bond that they have with that parental figure. And, you know, we never leave that. That never goes away. That's why divorce is so painful. Because that person that you have bonded with and said, who are we? Has chosen to say, I am no longer with you. But here's the promise of Jesus. He will always be with you. He will always gaze upon you in his infinite love. He will always look upon you as the one who says, I love you so much, I poured out my very blood for you. And in that gaze, the Spirit actually bonds us with this person. The Spirit bonds us with Jesus Christ, and the Spirit makes us more like him. My question for you is this, is do you spend time every day actually gazing upon Jesus? The one place where Jesus has promised you, this is who I actually am, is in his divine word. So often we make idols of Jesus, who we wish Jesus was or who we think Jesus is, right? So the wishing Jesus was is the Jesus who endorses me. Or the other one that's just as hard to believe is the Jesus who stands in judgment over me. Both of those are false Jesuses. Jesus is the one who doesn't endorse your sin, and yet he looks upon you in infinite grace. And that Jesus is the hardest one for our sinful hearts to accept, but that's who he actually is revealed in Scripture. Do you spend time with him every day, hearing his word, gazing upon his face, allowing him to form you? Do you spend time with him in this, the communion of saints, he promises that wherever two or three are gathered, there I am with you. Jesus is here this very moment in the people of this church, gazing upon you in his grace. He says, what you've done for the least of these, you've done for me. In our engagement, this is actually interesting. How do you interpret that? It's really significant. I'm not entirely sure which one is right. There's one way of thinking that says, how have you done for the least of these, you've done for me? That means the children of the church, actually. Did you know that? That's a, that's a very plausible interpretation. In fact, it might be the most likely interpretation. Because in the church, that's the context of what's being said here. The least of these in that context would have been the children. That's why Jesus said, don't cast them off, bring them unto me. So in the children of our church, do you see the face of Jesus? Now, it's also important to remember that throughout the history of the church, that passage has been interpreted as the poor. 
And I think that's also an incredibly plausible interpretation. I'd like to think both are just as likely. Do you see Jesus in the poor? Are, is your heart moved by those who are less fortunate than you and are under oppression and in and the struggles of this life, do you see Jesus in them and do you turn your face to them? I don't know what it is for you. I don't know where you need to see the face of Jesus, but are you looking for him in your life? This is how the Spirit transforms us, moves us, and shapes us over time. But I also want to look at this, this other piece because the passage ends very specifically. It says this, and we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. As we gaze upon him, we transform into his image. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. When all the cards are on the table, where does Christian growth come from? the Spirit actively at work in our lives. True Christian freedom, true maturity, true growth only happens when we give authority in our lives to the work of the Spirit as He moves through us. Now, what this doesn't mean is, you know, this uh, meaning it's either the Spirit's work or it's my work and none the two shall mix, Right? This is, you know, where the great debates of the Reformation occurred. The Arminians said, it has to be your will or it's not your will. And the Reformed rightly said, that's not right. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says this. Look at Psalm 51.10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with what? A willing spirit. What do we see here? It's not an either or. Rather, it's that the spirit is not an actor among actors. So either he's moving this or I'm moving this. He's being himself. He's reality himself. He's existence himself. And therefore, he can actually move within your moving, act within your acting, will within your willing, and it's still your will. That's what we mean when we say we believe in free will, that the human will actually exists. And it's free when the spirit is actively at work when the Spirit is moving you in a way that you can't fully explain, you can't fully understand, and yet there has never been a time in which you say any less, that wasn't my will. When we say, I absolutely chose that, and if it's for the good and for the true, what are we going to say at the end of the day? Thank you, Spirit, for moving my will to love what you love and to love you more. And here's what we see in the Christian life. We see that I don't know how, we can't fully explain it within our frame of reference. It doesn't make sense. We can oppose the will of the Spirit or we can engage the will of the Spirit. And the Christian life is the day in and day out practices of saying, Lord, may your will be done in my life. Lord, my hands are open to you. Lord, move within my moving, act within my acting, so that in me, I want what is good. I love what is good. I run to what is good. 
And that actually is a process. It's a process of choosing to say yes to the movement of the Spirit in the seemingly mundane things of life so that when it's time to say yes to the Spirit where the battle is occurring, our first response is yes and amen. I was listening to a brain scientist. I like him a lot. His name's Andrew Huberman. Has anyone ever listened to him? He's a brain scientist. Yeah, he's a, it's, I think people who want to get more done listen to him a lot. Then you're like, maybe I'm getting not as much done by listening to this guy talk about getting stuff done. But that's the thing for another time. But he talks about how like some days he'll just like say no to things just to say no to them to build willpower, right? Uh, you know, I just won't, like seven or eight times a day, I want my cell phone. I don't really have a reason. I'll just say, nope, just not going to. Nope, just not going to do it. Just not going to pick up my cell phone. Why? Because actually you can grow willpower. Did you know that? You can actually grow willpower. So too, we can engage spiritual practices where we say yes to the Spirit in seemingly mundane things so that our posture to the Spirit is yes. You know, often what we do in order to not do that is to say, is that really the Spirit or is that just me, right? I don't know if it's not wrong if it's in alignment with God's will, assume it's the Spirit. And the Spirit will form in you a posture of saying yes instead of a posture of saying no. This week, I'm a little irritated about this, but the Spirit told me to do it twice. I bought this book I've been looking forward to reading, and twice I have not walked away from a breakfast meeting with it, right? Because twice I've been like, okay, here, God told me to give this to you. I'm pretty irritated with him about it, but here, I don't tell the other person that. Sorry, Toby. I didn't tell you that at the time. <laughs> Jesse Blaine said, is this a gift or are you lending it to me? I said, it's a gift. It's, I don't want it to be a gift. It's a gift. Fine. Right? I hate lines, right? Is there, is there a time when the Spirit might just say, you know, Tim, you got to get in the back of that line. Is there a time where the Spirit might be saying, you need to lose this argument? You need to lose this argument. Are there things in your life that seem incredibly mundane and small like ask, answering a child how much a mountain weighs. Oh man, I'm, I'm out of patience with that. And I need God to build that patience in me. I need God to put that in me. And at the end of the day, it's him. It's he's the one that's putting it in you. But how does he do that? The slow process of saying yes to him again and again in the little skirmishes of life so that when the battle actually rages, your first response is yes and amen. And from our perspective, that looks like a profound act of the will, an engagement with him, with the Spirit. Family, as we talk about this growth in the image of Christ, my prayer is that we would actually take this season seriously that we would look at those sins in our lives that we don't feel like we can be freed from and to plead with the Spirit to increase our faith, to increase your faith and my faith, that we might truly believe that we can be set free. And then to engage in daily practices where the Spirit builds freedom and maturity. And that will always begin and be built from a life of gazing at Jesus and a life where we say yes to the Spirit. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, would you descend upon this place? Holy Spirit, would you give us the freedom that we cannot create in ourselves? Holy Spirit, would our response be yes and amen to you today? To the glory of your name, amen.